Act Two of the Doctor's Dilemma. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Doctor's Dilemma, by George Bernard Shaw. Act Two. After dinner on the terrace at the Star and Garter, Richmond, cloudless summer night. Nothing disturbs the stillness except from time to time the long trajectory of a distant train and the measured clucking of oars coming up from the Thames in the valley below. The dinner is over, and three of the eight chairs are empty. Sir Patrick, with his back to the view, is at the head of the square table with Ridgeon. The two chairs opposite them are empty. On their right come first a vacant chair, and then one very fully occupied by Beebe, who basks blissfully in the moonbeams. On their left, Schutzmacher and Walpole. The entrance to the hotel is on their right, behind Beebe. The five men are silently enjoying their coffee and cigarettes, full of food, and not altogether void of wine. Mrs. Dubedat, wrapped up for departure, comes in. They rise, except Sir Patrick, but she takes one of the vacant places at the foot of the table, next to Beebe, and they sit down again. Lewis will be here presently. He is showing Dr. Blenkinsop how to work the telephone. She sits. Oh, I'm so sorry we have to go. It seems such a shame, this beautiful night. And we have enjoyed ourselves so much. I don't believe another half-hour would do Mr. Dubedat a bit of harm. Come now, Cully, come, come, none of that. You take your man home, Mrs. Dubedat, and get into bed before eleven. Yes, yes, bed before eleven. Quite right, quite right. Sorry to lose you, my dear lady, but Sir Patrick's orders are the laws of, uh, of Tyre and Sidon. Let me take you home in my motor. No, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, Walpole. Your motor will take Mr. and Mrs. Dubedat to the station, and quite far enough, too, for an open carriage at night. Oh, I am sure the train is best. Well, Mrs. Dubedat, we have had a most enjoyable evening. Most enjoyable. What did you think of Lewis? Or am I wrong to ask? Wrong? Why, we are all charmed with him. Delighted. Most happy to have met him. A privilege, a real privilege. Hmm. Sir Patrick, are you uneasy about him? I admire his drawings greatly, ma'am. Yes, but I meant— You shall go away quite happy. He's worth saving. He must and shall be saved. Mrs. Dubedat rises and gasps with delight relief, and gratitude. They all rise except Sir Patrick and Schutzmacher, and come reassuringly to her. Certainly, certainly. There's no real difficulty if you only know what to do. Oh, how can I ever thank you? From this night I can begin to be happy at last. You don't know what I feel. She sits down in tears. They crowd about her to console her. My Dear lady, come, 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 come. Oh, don't mind us. Have a good cry. No, don't cry. Your husband had better not know that we've been talking about him. No, of course not. Please don't mind me. What a glorious thing it must be to be a doctor. Don't laugh. You don't know what you've done for me. I never knew until now how deadly afraid I was, how I had come to dread the worst. I never dared let myself know. But now the relief has come. Now I know. Louis Dubedat comes from the hotel, in his overcoat, his throat wrapped in a shawl. He is a slim young man of twenty-three. 
physically still a stripling, and pretty, though not effeminate. He has turquoise-blue eyes, and a trick of looking you straight in the face with them, which, combined with a frank smile, is very engaging. Although he is all nerves, and very observant and quick of apprehension, he is not in the least shy. He is younger than Jennifer, but he patronizes her as a matter of course. The doctors do not put him out in the least. Neither Sir Patrick's years, nor Bloomfield Bonington's majesty have the smallest apparent effect on him. He is as natural as a cat. He moves among men as most men move among things, though he is intentionally making himself agreeable to them on this occasion. Like all people who can be depended on to take care of themselves, he is welcome company, and his artist's power of appealing to the imagination gains him credit for all sorts of qualities and powers, whether he possesses them or not. Lewis, pulling on his gloves behind Ridgeon's chair. Now, Jenny Gwynny, the motto's come around. Why do you let him spoil your beautiful name like that, Mrs. Dubedat? Oh, on grand occasions I am Jennifer. You are a bachelor. You do not understand these things, Rigan. Look at me. I also have two names. In moments of domestic worry I am simple Raff. When the sun shines in my home I am Beetle Deedle Dumpkins. Such is married life. Mr. Dubidot, may I ask you to do me a favor before you go? Will you sign your name to this menu card under the sketch you have made of me? Yes, and mine too, if you'll be so good. Certainly. He sits down and signs the cards. Won't you sign Dr. Schutzmacher's for him, Lewis? I don't think Dr. Schutzmacher is pleased with his portrait. I'll tear it up. No, no, if Looney doesn't want it, I do. I'll sign it for you with pleasure. He signs and hands it to Ridgen. I've just been making a little note of the river tonight. It will work up into something good. I think I'll call it the Silver Danube. Ah, charming, charming. Very sweet. You're a nailer at pastel. <coughs> now then, Mr. Dubedat, you've had enough of the night air. Take him home, ma'am. Yes, come, Lewis. Never fear, never mind. I'll make that cough all right. We will stimulate the phagocytes. Good night, Mrs. Dubidat. Good night, good night. If the phagocytes fail, come to me. I'll put you right. Good night, Sir Patrick. Happy to have met you. Night. Good night, Sir Patrick. Cover yourself well up. Don't think your lungs are made of iron because they're better than his. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Nothing hurts me. Good night. Lewis goes out through the hotel without noticing Schutzmacher. Mrs. Dubedat hesitates, then bows to him. Schutzmacher rises and bows formally, German fashion. She goes out, attended by Ridgen. The rest resume their seats, ruminating or smoking quietly. Delightful couple, charming woman, gifted lad, remarkable talent, graceful outlines, perfect evening, great success, interesting case, glorious night, exquisite scenery, capital dinner, stimulating conversation, restful outing, good wine, happy ending, touching gratitude, lucky Ridgen. What's that, calling me, Bibi? He goes back to his seat next Sir Patrick. No, no, only congratulating you on a most successful evening, enchanting woman, 
thorough breeding, gentle nature, refined— Blenkinsop comes from the hotel, and takes the empty chair next Ridgeon. I'm so sorry to have left you like this, Ridgeon, but it was a telephone message from the police. They found half a milkman at our level crossing with a prescription of mine in its pocket. Where's Mr. Dubit at? Gone. Blenkinsop, rising, very pale. Gone? Just this moment. Perhaps I could overtake him. He rushes into the hotel. He's in the motor, man, miles off. You can... no use. They're really very nice people. I confess I was afraid the husband would turn out an appalling bounder, but he's almost as charming in his way as she is in hers. And there's no mistake about his being a genius. It's something to have got a case really worth saving. Somebody else will have to go, but at all events it will be easy to find a worse man. How do you know? Come now, Sir Paddy, no growling. Have something more to drink. No, thank you. Do you see anything wrong with Dubedat, Bibi? Oh, a charming young fellow. Besides, after all, what could be wrong with him? Look at him. What could be wrong with him? There are two things that could be wrong with any man. One of them is a check. The other is a woman. Until you know that a man's sound on these two points, you know nothing about him. Ah, cynic, cynic. He's all right as to the check, for a while at all events. He talked to me quite frankly before dinner as to the pressure of money difficulties on an artist. He says he has no vices and is very economical, but that there's one extravagance he can't afford and yet can't resist, and that is dressing his wife prettily. So I said, bang plump out, let me lend you twenty pounds, and pay me when your ship comes home. He was really very nice about it. He took it like a man, and it was a pleasure to see how happy it made him, poor chap. But, but— but when was this, may I ask? When I joined you that time down by the river. But, my dear Walpole, he had just borrowed ten pounds from me. What? Hmm. Well, well, it was really hardly borrowing, for he said heaven only knew when he could pay me. I couldn't refuse. It appears that Mrs. Dubidot has taken a sort of fancy to me. No, it was to me. Certainly not. Your name was never mentioned between us. He is so wrapped up in his work that he has to leave her a good deal alone, and the poor innocent young fellow—he has, of course, no idea of my position or how busy I am—actually wanted me to call occasionally and talk to her. Exactly what he said to me. Pooh, 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 really, I must say. Look here, Ridgeon, this is beginning to look serious. Blenkinsop very anxious and wretched, but trying to look unconcerned, comes back. Well, did you catch him? Uh, no. Excuse my running away like that. He sits down at the foot of the table, next Bloomfield Bonington's chair. Anything the matter? Oh, no. A, a trifle. Something ridiculous. It can't be helped. Never mind. Was it anything about Dubedat? I ought to keep it to myself, I know. I can't tell you, Ridgeon, how ashamed I am of dragging my miserable poverty to your dinner after all your kindness. It's not that you won't ask me again, but it's so humiliating, and I did so look forward to one evening in my dress clothes. They're still presentable, you see, with all my troubles left behind, just like old times. But what has happened? Oh, nothing. It's too ridiculous. 
I had just scraped up four shillings for this little outing, and it cost me one and fourpence to get here. Well, Dubinat asked me to lend him half a crown to tip the chambermaid of the room his wife had left her wraps in, and for the cloak-room. He said he only wanted it for five minutes, as she had his purse. Uh, so, of course, I lent it to him, and he's forgotten to pay me. I've just tuppence to get back with. Oh, never mind that. No, I know what you're going to say, but I won't take it. I've never borrowed a penny, I never will. I've nothing left but my friends, and I won't sell them. If none of you were to be able to meet me without being afraid that my civility was leading up to the loan of five shillings, there would be an end of everything for me. I'll take your old clothes, Collie, sooner than disgrace you by talking to you in the street in my own. But I won't borrow money. I'll train it as far as the tuppence will take me, and I'll tramp the rest. You'll do the whole distance in my motor. They are all greatly relieved, and Walpole hastens to get away from the painful subject by adding, Did he get anything out of you, Mr. Schutzmacher? Schutzmacher shakes his head in a most expressive negative. You didn't appreciate his drawing, I think. Oh, yes, I did. I should have liked very much to have kept the sketch and got it autographed. But why didn't you? Well, the fact is, when I joined Dubedat after his conversation with Mr. Walpole, he said the Jews were the only people who knew anything about art, and that though he had to put up with your Philistine twaddle, as he called it, it was what I said about the drawings that really pleased him. He also said that his wife was greatly struck with my knowledge, and that she always admired Jews. Then he asked me to advance him fifty pounds on the security of the drawings. No, no, positively, seriously, what? What? Another fifty? Think of that! Mm. Of course I couldn't lend money to a stranger like that. I envy you the power to say no, Mr. Schutzmacher. Of course I knew I oughtn't to lend money to a young fellow in that way, but I simply hadn't the nerve to refuse. I couldn't very well, you know, could I? I don't understand that. I felt I couldn't very well lend it. What did he say? Well, he made a very uncalled-for remark about a Jew not understanding the feelings of a gentleman. I must say you Gentiles are very hard to please. You say we are no gentlemen when we lend money, and when we refuse to lend it, you say just the same. I didn't mean to behave badly. As I told him, I might have lent it to him if he had been a Jew himself. Hmm? And what did he say to that? Oh, he began trying to persuade me that he was one of the chosen people, that his artistic faculty shewed it, and that his name was as foreign as my own. He said he didn't really want fifty pounds, that he was only joking, that all he wanted was a couple of sovereigns. No, no, Mr. Schutzmacher, you invented that last touch seriously now? No, you can't improve on nature in telling stories about gentlemen like Mr. Dubedat. You certainly do stand by one another, you chosen people, Mr. Schutzmacher. Not at all. Personally, I like Englishmen better than Jews, and always associate with them. That's only natural, because as I am a Jew, there's nothing interesting in a Jew to me. 
whereas there is always something interesting and foreign in an Englishman, but in money matters it's quite different. You see, when an Englishman borrows, all he knows or cares is that he wants money, and he'll sign anything to get it, without in the least understanding it, or intending to carry out the agreement if it turns out badly for him. In fact, he thinks you a cad if you ask him to carry it out under such circumstances, just like the merchant of Venice, you know. But if a Jew makes an agreement, he means to keep it and expects you to keep it. If he wants money for a time, he borrows it, and he knows he must pay it at the end of the time. If he knows he can't pay, he begs it as a gift. Come, Looney, do you mean to say that Jews are never rogues and thieves? Oh, not at all. But I was not talking of criminals. I was comparing honest Englishmen with honest Jews. One of the hotel maids, a pretty, fair-haired woman of about twenty-five, comes from the hotel, rather furtively. She accosts Ridgeon. I beg your pardon, sir. Eh? I beg your pardon, sir. It's not about the hotel. I'm not allowed to be on the terrace, and I should be discharged if I were seen speaking to you unless you were kind enough to say you called me to ask whether the motor has come back from the station yet. Has it? Yes, sir. Well, what do you want? Would you mind, sir, giving me the address of the gentleman that was with you at dinner? Yes, of course I should mind very much. You have no right to ask. Yes, sir. I know it looks like that. But what am I to do? What's the matter with you? Nothing, sir. I want the address, that's all. You mean the young gentleman? Yes, sir. That went to catch the train with the woman he brought with him. The woman? Do you mean the lady who dined here, the gentleman's wife? Don't believe them, sir. She can't be his wife. I'm his wife. My good girl! You his wife? What? What's that? Oh, this is getting perfectly fascinating, Ridgeon. I could run upstairs and get you my marriage lines in a minute, sir, if you doubt my word. He's Mr. Lewis Dubedat, isn't he? Yes. Well, sir, you may believe me or not, but I'm the lawful Mrs. Dubedat. And why aren't you living with your husband? We couldn't afford it, sir. I had thirty pounds saved, and we spent it all on our honeymoon in three weeks, and a lot more that he borrowed. Then I had to go back into service, and he went to London to get work at his drawing, and he never wrote me a line, or sent me an address. I never saw nor heard from him again until I caught sight of him from the window going off into the motor with that woman. Well, that's two wives to start with. Now, upon my soul, I don't want to be uncharitable, but really I'm beginning to suspect that our young friend is rather careless. Beginning to think. How long will it take you, man, to find out that he's a damned young blackguard? Oh, that's very severe, Sir Patrick, very severe. Of course it's bigamy, but still, he's very young, and she's very pretty. Mr. Walpole, may I sponge on you for another of those nice cigarettes of yours? Certainly. He feels in his pocket. Oh, bother. Where? I say, I recollect now. I passed my cigarette case to Dubedat, and he didn't return it. It was a gold one. He didn't mean any harm. He never thinks about things like that, sir. I'll get it back for you, sir, if you'll tell me where to find him. What am I to do? Shall I give her the address or not? 
give her your own address and then we'll see you'll have to be content with that for the present my girl ridgeon gives her his card what's your name minnie tinwell sir well you write him a letter to take care of this gentleman and it will be sent on now be off with you thank you sir i'm sure you wouldn't see me wronged thank you all gentlemen and excuse the liberty she goes into the hotel do you realize chaps that we have promised mrs dubedat to save this fellow's life what's the matter with him tuberculosis and you can cure that i believe so then i wish you'd cure me my right lung is touched i'm sorry to say what your lung is going my dear blakensop what do you tell me hello you mustn't neglect this you know no no it's no use i know what you're going to say i've said it often to others i can't afford to take care of myself and there's an end of it if a fortnight's holiday would save my life i'd have to die i shall get on as others have to get on we can't all go to san moritz or egypt you know seraph don't talk about it mm. i must go it's been a very pleasant evening Colly. You might let me have my portrait, if you don't mind. I'll send Mr. Dubedat that couple of sovereigns for it. Ridgeon, giving him the menu card. Oh, don't do that, Looney. I don't think he'd like that. Well, of course I shan't, if you feel that way about it. But I don't think you understand Dubedat. However, perhaps that's because I'm a Jew. Good night, Dr. Blenkinsop. Shaking hands. Good night, sir. I, I mean, good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Schutzmacher goes out. It's time for us all to move. Mr. Walpole, take Blinkinsop home. He's had enough of the open air cure for tonight. Have you a thick overcoat to wear in the motor, Dr. Blinkinsop? Oh, they'll give me some brown paper in the hotel. And a few thicknesses of brown paper across the chest are better than any fur coat. Well, come along. Good night, Collie. You're coming with us, aren't you, Bibi? Yes, I'm coming. Walpole and Blenkinsop go into the hotel. Good night, my dear Riggan. Don't let us lose sight of your interesting patient and his very charming wife. We must not judge him too hastily, you know. Good night, Patty. Bless you, dear old chap. <laughs> uh, good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. He good-nights himself into the hotel. The others have meanwhile gone without ceremony. Ridgeon and Sir Patrick are left alone together. Ridgeon, deep in thought, comes down to Sir Patrick. Well, Mr. Saviour of Lives, which is it to be? That honest, decent man, Blenkinsop, or that rotten blackguard of an artist, eh? It's not an easy case to judge, is it? Blenkinsop's an honest, decent man. But is he any use? Dubedat's a rotten blackguard, but he's a genuine source of pretty and pleasant and good things. What will he be the source of for that poor innocent wife of his when she finds him out? That's true. Her life will be a hell. And tell me this. Suppose you had this choice put before you, either to go through life and find all the pictures bad, but all the men and women good or to go through life and find all the pictures good and all the men and women rotten which would you choose that's a devilishly difficult question patty the pictures are so agreeable 
and the good people so infernally disagreeable and mischievous that i really can't undertake to say off-hand which i should prefer to do without come come none of your cleverness with me i am too old for it blenkinsop isn't that sort of good man and you know it it would be simpler if blenkinsop could paint dubedat's pictures it would be simpler still if dubedat had some of blenkinsop's honesty the world isn't going to be made simple for you my lad you must take it as it is you've to hold the scales between blenkinsop and dubedat hold them fairly well i'll be as fair as i can i'll put into one scale all the pounds dubedat has borrowed and into the other all the half-crowns that blenkinsop hasn't borrowed and you'll take out of dubedat's scale all the faith he has destroyed and all the honour he has lost and you'll put into blenkinsop's scale all the faith he has justified and the honour he has created come come paddy none of your claptrap with me i'm too sceptical for it i'm not at all convinced that the world wouldn't be a better world if everybody behaved as dubedat does than it is now that everybody behaves as blenkinsop does then why don't you behave as dubedat does ah that beats me that's the experimental test still it's a dilemma it's a dilemma you see there's a complication we haven't mentioned what's that well if i let blenkinsop die at least nobody can say i did it because i wanted to marry his widow eh what's that now if i let dubedat die i'll marry his widow perhaps she would have you you know i've a pretty good flair for that sort of thing i know when a woman is interested in me she is well sometimes a man knows best and sometimes he knows worst you'd much better cure them both i can't i'm at my limit i can squeeze in one more case but not two i must choose well you must choose as if she didn't exist that's clear is that clear to you mind it's not clear to me she troubles my judgment to me it's a plain choice between a man and a lot of pictures it's easier to replace a dead man than a good picture collie when you live in an age that runs to pictures and statues and plays and brass bands because its men and women are not good enough to comfort its poor aching soul you should thank providence that you belong to a profession which is a high and great profession because its business is to heal and mend men and women in short as a member of a high and great profession i'm to kill my patient don't talk wicked nonsense you can't kill him but you can leave him in other hands in bb's for instance eh sir ralph bloomfield bonington is a very eminent physician he is i'm going for my hat ridgeon strikes the bell as sir patrick makes for the hotel a waiter comes my bill please yes sir end of act two